Okay, so this morning we're, we're coming to possibly one of the most romantic portions of Scripture. And if you remember back to Ruth chapter 2, we see that through God's leading, Ruth and Boaz, they met one another, they encountered one another. And you could just sense that something was brewing there. Here is this young widow who came from the wrong side of the tracks, who had nothing. And she meets this man and, okay, he's a wealthy man, but he is also a man of integrity. And he shows interest in her and he takes her under his wing. He shows her favour. And then we discovered that he was a distant relative who was a family redeemer. And what that meant was that he was eligible to marry her. So God has brought about an opportunity that not only is part of his purposes, but on a personal note, could bring these two well-suited people together in marriage. Well, things really escalate in chapter 3. A plan is hatched, action is taken, and marriage is proposed. And as we will unfold later, it's not done in a conventional manner. Now one of the things that I must point out about today's scripture is that it is not a prescriptive step-by-step -step guide on how to propose marriage. So here's a tip for all you single ladies out there. You should probably take notes on the principles behind today's passage and not a list on how to reel in Mr. Wright. My guess is that if you try Ruth's method, it'll probably end in disaster. Can you imagine entering into some guy's house in the middle of the night, rolling back the bottom of his bedsheets, revealing his feet, which might be a risky act in itself, and then laying down at the end of his bed, waiting for him to wake up and discover you? I'm no expert or anything, but I don't think that that is a good idea. Now, being this theme of romance today, I thought I'd throw in a few tips uh, to our younger, well, not necessarily younger, but to our single people. So there'll be a few more golden nuggets coming up later in the, in the sermon. So watch out for those. As we read through chapter 3, take note of the actions of the three people involved. Naomi and Ruth recognise God's providence and they come up with a plan, and Ruth sees this plan through. They seize the opportunity that God has put before them. And for Boaz, when the possibility of a romantic relationship becomes apparent to him, he maintains his moral integrity. And then we'll see that a spanner is thrown in the works, and then he and Ruth both put their trust in God. So let's pray and then let's read God's word. Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. We just thank you, the Lord, from each portion of scripture we can come and, and, and just see your teaching in it. Lord, we just pray that as we look as the, at the examples of, of, um, of things that, that Ruth and Naomi and, and Boaz bring to us this morning, 
Lord, just bring us understanding. We pray that your spirit quickens things to us as we read through your word, as, as I speak um, based on your word this morning. Lord, I just pray that you quicken things to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ruth chapter 3. One day Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume, perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came, down, uh, came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Okay, so there are two themes that run through the book of Ruth. 
And those two themes are redemption and providence. Now both of these themes come up today in today's passage. However, we will focus on the subject of God's providence, or more precisely, on our actions in the light of God's providence. Now, the theme of redemption, which is probably the main theme of this book, will be covered in depth when we come to Ruth 4 in a couple of months' time. Besides, we had such a fantastic illustration of redemption last week, didn't we? Probably one of the clearest and most concise illustrations that I have seen on redemption. And didn't young Bronwyn do well as well? Um, She was quite brave sitting here and being part of the illustration that we had. One thing that um, you can take away from last Sunday is to remember this. Be very wary when Calfane asks you for assistance during one of his sermons. I do remember one time, and he didn't go through with it, but he asked me to help him out with one of his sermons, and it was a sermon on faith. And the idea was I was going to stand up here with my back to you and fall forwards, and he was going to catch me. Uh, Calfane thought the better of it, and I think in hindsight, um, even though I trusted him, (laughs) it may have been for the best. Anyway, we're going to look at God's providence, and a good place to start is to define what is meant by God's providence. And for this, I default to the experts. And in this case, I'm going to default to a guy by the name of Wayne Grudem. And this is a biblical definition of God's providence. It's also known as divine providence. So God's providence is the doctrine that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, he directs them to fulfil his purposes. So part of God's providence is that he directs us to fulfil his purposes. So the question for today is, in light of this definition of God's providence, what is our role? What are our responsibilities? And in Ruth 3, we see three answers that come to light which respond to this question. So when we look at uh, Ruth 3, our responsibilities in the light of God's providence are, and, and this isn't a definitive list by any means, this is just what we extract from today's text, they are, number one, act on God's opportunities. So when God brings an opportunity to us, we, we need to recognise it and act upon it. Number two, maintain your moral integrity while waiting for his purposes to be fulfilled. Um, As we spoke about last week, our conduct is quite important. And you'll probably remember that one of the applications from last Sunday's sermon on redemption was to live, live as if we are citizens of heaven. That's how we are to conduct ourselves. So maintain our moral integrity while we're waiting for God to fulfill his purposes. And number three, trust in God when there are obstacles along the way. Have faith that God will continue to lead us into his will no matter what crops up. You see, God's purpose is for Ruth and Boaz to be married. 
And then later his purposes are fulfilled through their great-grandson, David, who would become king of Israel. And then much later, his purposes are further fulfilled with the birth, life and death of one of their descendants, Jesus the Messiah. So just how did Naomi and Ruth and Boaz react to God's providence? Well, firstly, let's look at Naomi and Ruth. We see them seizing upon an opportunity that God has provided them. Now, what I should point out at this stage is there is a big picture, small picture scenario going on. In God's big picture, he was bringing Boaz and Ruth together for his greater purposes. From Naomi and Ruth's perspective, this was an everyday life situation with their needs and their wants. So that was the small picture. We've got the small picture, the way that we see things through our everyday eyes, and God's big picture going on there in the background. In chapter 2, Ruth somehow just happened to come upon the field of Boaz and find work there. And then, of course, Boaz showed interest in Ruth and showed favour to her. When Ruth told Naomi about Boaz, Naomi remembered and realises and tells Ruth that Boaz is, in fact, one of their closest relatives. More important than this, he is a family redeemer. Now this meant a couple of things in their situation. Firstly, he could buy back or redeem the land that had previously belonged to the family. Um, this was the land that was sold when they went to Moab. So he could take up the opportunity to do this. And secondly, he could marry his relative's childless widow. And in this case, that was Ruth. And this was done so that the dead relative's inheritance could be preserved through the widow's first child. It was a Hebrew redemption law thing going on here. You see, God has always been about redemption. And it's not just a principle that relates to Jesus, though he is the fulfillment of the law and he is the ultimate redeemer. But God was so much into redemption that he instituted it into the Jewish culture. He instituted it into their everyday lives. Now by the end of chapter 2, we see that God had been working behind the scenes, engineering his purposes by bringing about this opportunity, this possibility of marriage. Now prior to recent events, before Ruth sought out work to provide them food, Naomi and Ruth were in a desperate situation. They had faced many tragedies in Moab. They had returned to Bethlehem. However, they were poor, and as widows, they had no real means of supporting themselves. And then we had that stopgap measure, didn't we? There was that stopgap measure for Ruth to go out gleaning in the harvest field. However, this was just a temporary solution. The harvest season was at an end, and things were again starting to look bleak. Or were they? In the last few weeks, Naomi had seen God's blessing come upon them through Boaz. For the first time since she left for Moab with her family, a real ray of hope had come their way. And this ray of hope triggered something within Naomi 
and she sprang into action. She said to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. So Naomi hatches a plan. This plan marks a turning point in the story of Ruth and ultimately a turning point in their personal circumstances. On the surface of it, it appears to be a crazy plan. It's quite ambitious, it's quite risky. You see, the normal conventions of the day and the culture were for a woman's parents to arrange a marriage for their daughter. What this plan basically entailed was for Ruth to pretty much present herself to Boaz and declare to him that she is available for a marriage proposal. It's like she is the one who is proposing this marriage. Now that's totally countercultural and very risky, which explains why there was a need to seek out Boaz in secrecy and under the cover of night. Ruth really needed to speak to Boaz when they were totally alone and away from the prying eyes of others. Now, of course, there was also the risk in the way Boaz would react. Would he be outraged? Would he take advantage of her? How was he going to react to, um, to this plan? On the other hand, if the plan came together, then Ruth would find a loving, loyal husband and the family's future and security would be attained. So here's the plan. Now, if you look at this plan, step one and two are really sort of like background circumstances which enable the actual plan to take place or to take shape. Step one, Boaz is a family redeemer, which meant that he was eligible to marry Ruth. And on top of this, he was a man of high moral fibre. He was a, described as a godly man. And on top of this, he had shown interest in Ruth and he had shown her favour. So he was real husband material and there was this chance that he would want to marry Ruth. Step number two, Boaz would be winnowing barley tonight. So he would be on his own and under the cover of darkness. So Ruth and Boaz could be alone to talk to each other without, knowing, without anyone else around. Now we come to the real crux of the plan. Step three, preparation. So Ruth was to bathe, she was to put on perfume and she was to put on her best clothes. Now, we probably think that this was all about Ruth making herself more attractive to Boaz. Well, it's actually a little bit more to it than that. You see, Ruth was a widow, and widows would wear certain clothes that demonstrated that they were in mourning. They would even wear these clothes to work. By getting dressed up, Ruth was actually making a statement. She was saying, I am no longer in mourning. I am ready to move on with my life. I'm ready to move on to things such as marriage and children. She would be sending a message to Boaz through this action of what she wore and how she presented herself. Now, as you can appreciate, it's quite a well thought out and cunning plan that Naomi has come up with here. Now I've got tip number one for you sing, single guys. This perfume thing, this um, cleaning yourself up thing. 
And I'm making it more of a guy thing here than a girl thing. You know, they have invented this thing called a shower. And they've also invented this other thing called deodorant. So my tip is, is to make use of these modern marvels regularly. Now it's not like the ads, and we've all seen the ads, where you spray a bit of deodorant on and, and the girls, they just come out of the woodwork. It's not like that. Now if you're clean and you smell reasonable, not too much deodorant by the way, there is a fine line. What can happen is that if you happen to find yourself in the presence of a girl, the possibility exists that she may just speak with you rather than being repulsed and heading off in the opposite direction. But don't get too carried away, okay? Those, those ads really are just false advertising. Okay, step four. Let Boaz eat, drink and fall asleep. Now this was quite a good idea because this achieved two things. Firstly, it allowed Boaz to be in a place of contentment. He would have been in quite high spirit. It had been a successful harvest and of course he had just completed a hard day of work and he was watered and fed. Okay, so that brings us to tip number two for single woman. Feed them and then you can get their attention. Okay, so that's like money in the bank. Now that's it. I'm done with romantic tips. I'm out. That's all I've got. And besides, I think if you ask Lisa, I'm probably the last person who should be uh, giving tips on romance. Okay, even though that's the last one, you may pick up a few things from the principles behind today's passage. Uh, not just for romance, obviously, but for all aspects of God's leading in our lives. So anyway, step four, come to Boaz when he is in a good mood, when he is in high spirits, and this is a timing thing. It also meant that there was more time was allowed to ensure that they had privacy. There may still have been people around or still nearby at this stage, so that was part of the plan. Step five, once Boaz is asleep, uncover his feet and lay down. Now, this step seems really out of the gate, doesn't it? And I think the reasoning here was that Boaz would wake up later because his feet would, would get cold. So this allowed two things again. Again, it, allowed, it ensured more time um, to make sure that everyone else in the area had either gone to sleep or had gone home. And it also meant that Boaz would have been woken up gently, not by someone shaking him and giving him a real shock. Step six, Boaz will tell Ruth what to do. So that's the plan. And it seems like a bit of a crazy plan, doesn't it? But it might just work. Now, what I want to point out at this stage is the significance of Naomi, not only recognising God's providence, but taking action upon it. Here is a woman who has been absolutely through the ringer. For several years, her life was one disaster after another, one tragedy after another. So much so that she wanted to change her name to Mara, which means bitterness. 
Why was God allowing all of this to happen to her? You know, sometimes people endure tragedies or they are hurt by somebody or they are hurt by a church or by something that happens and they can't move on from there. It may be like Naomi's situation with a whole string of things that are piling up upon them. But unfortunately, it's like they stagnate for years or even decades. And they ask questions like, where are you, God? Why did that happen to me? Why won't you perform some sort of miracle for me? Now, it's easy for me to stand up here and uh, talk about such things. I can't appreciate or don't have a real understanding of different people's situations and the things that they have been through. All I can do is point to Naomi and say, look at her example. She's been there. She's done that. And there are some lessons to be learnt from her actions. She continued to seek God, she remained faithful, and she looked for opportunities that God placed before her. And, you know, let's be realistic. It's, it's probably not going to be some majestic miracle move of God that may come our way. It may be just in a simple everyday occurrence. Naomi teaches us that despite previous setbacks, God is still at work advancing his purposes. Seek his will, look for his provision, and don't give up. And of course, seek help if you need to. There are Christian friends, there are church pastoral teams, and there is even professionally trained Christian counsellors. Though from my experience, I know that they are a bit harder to come across but they are there and they should be called upon when needed. And of course this application is not just for people who have been through hardships, but for all of us. We all come to crossroads and choices in our lives. We should be all seeking the opportunities that God has presented to us. Right, so we've looked at Naomi's plan. Now let's briefly look at Ruth's actions. The first thing that we see is that Ruth remains dedicated and loyal to Naomi. I will do whatever you say. Now this statement is a reflection of her initial statement of loyalty uh, to Naomi back in Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 to 17. I haven't put that up there, sorry, um, but that's Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 to 17 if you're taking notes. And, And this is what... Uh, Ruth said to Naomi when they were in that situation where Naomi was wanting to return to Bethlehem and she advised her two daughter-in-laws to go back to their families. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So you can see there the love and dedication that Ruth has for Naomi. She trusts her and she trusts her counsel. Now we're not told about it here, um, but I just can't help think about what was going through Ruth's mind as she was contemplating this plan and putting it into action. Surely she had reservations and was quite nervous about it all. 
She certainly had plenty of time and chances to, to back out of it. Whatever the case is, she showed courage, she saw it through, she trusted Naomi, and she followed her plan. So Ruth goes to the threshing floor. She waits for Boaz to finish his work, for him to, to, to eat and drink and to go to sleep. And once he is asleep, she goes over, uncovers his feet, and lies down there. And what happens? Later on, Boaz wakes up. His feet are cold. He realises that there is actually a woman laying at his feet. And he asks the question, Who are you? Now, Ruth's reply is very interesting. She says to Boaz, I am your servant, Ruth. Now, usually when we hear the word servant, uh, we think about someone who serves someone else or someone who, who does work for somebody else. And, and an example is Ruth herself, isn't it? She, she was a labourer in one of Boaz's fields. The word used here actually means a bit more than this. It's more used in a sense of a woman who is eligible and ready for marriage. So what Ruth is saying is, I am your servant, I am eligible and I am available for a marriage proposal. Now, what Ruth was doing here was taking the plan a little bit further and running with it. Step six was, Boaz will tell you what to do. But Ruth showed some initiative and she went for broke. She was making her intentions crystal clear. Now, apparently women sometimes have to do this when dealing with guys. She was putting her intentions right out there. And she continues in this vein. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer of our family. Now, in that time, there was a custom for a man when he wanted to propose marriage to take a blanket and throw it over the woman that he was proposing to. And I can't imagine that um, working now, taking a blanket and throwing it over some some woman. She'll be thinking, man, this blanket's stinky anyway. But, but that was a custom of the time. And, and, and you can understand it. It symbolised that he was taking her under his wing, under his protection, providing for and caring for her. They would be together under his protection. They would be together under his covering. And that's what it was all about. Now this sort of thing sounds familiar, doesn't it? Back in Ruth chapter 2, Boaz said something similar to Ruth. Uh, back in uh, Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So maybe, just maybe, Boaz was to be one of the means by which God would take her under his wings of refuge. Boaz would in essence be fulfilling the blessing that he himself spoke over Ruth. So what Ruth was proposing here was that Boaz should propose marriage to her. And when you consider this in the light of the following, 
I mean, first of all, she was his employee and he was her boss. More than that, she was a Moabite woman. She'd come from Moab. She was a foreigner. And there's all the dynamics there going on between the Israelites and the people from Moab. And she was expecting a highly regarded Israeli man to marry her. Um, and of course, she was a woman. And in that day and age, um, it would have been totally improper for a woman to act in this way. It just wasn't done. And of course, she was very poor and destitute. And he himself was a very rich and self-sufficient man. So you can sort of understand all of the secrecy and the acting under the cover of darkness. She really was laying everything on the line. If things didn't work out, she would face indignation, she would face anger, she would face rejection and humiliation. But as we know from the text, Boaz reacted favourably. He was only too willing to get on board with the plan. And in fact, for him, this was, was actually a well moment. One suspects that Ruth indeed caught his eye before this night at the threshing floor. Now this is Boaz's reply to her. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of town, of my town, know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, both Ruth and Boaz were people of virtuous conduct. They were therefore very well matched for each other despite the apparent age difference. And they continued to act in a virtuous manner within this situation that they were in on that night. The first thing is they had a mutual respect for one another. Up until now, Boaz has shown nothing but respect for Ruth. He hadn't made any moves on Ruth earlier, partly because he didn't think she would be interested in him, but I believe also out of respect. She was a grieving widow, and it wouldn't be right for him to push himself onto her. He also had respect and admiration for her character. Now Ruth also had respect for Boaz. She never presumed upon Boaz to supply her with work or with blessings, just because he was a relative. And even though her approach on this night was unconventional, it meant she was not coming to him in front of others or making a big scene of her intentions. Whatever his response was going to be, he could make his choice and enact upon it without others knowing about it. And he wasn't put on the spot in front of his peers. The second thing we see, that there was no improper behaviour or even the appearance of improper behaviour. Now part of that respect that we were just talking about was that there was no improper behaviour. Here, these two people were in a highly charged situation where they were on their own under the cover of darkness. Now, the opportunity was there for one of them to take advantage of the other or to make a move that opened the door for the relationship to be consummated. But that didn't happen. They had respect for each other. 
it was against their moral character. And there was also there the motivation to do things the right way. In fact, they didn't even want to give the impression of impropriety. Boaz and Ruth decided it would be best for her to leave while it was still dark, so that no one would see her or recognise her. Boaz said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. So nothing untoward happened. It's important to note that you need to be careful when dealing with this sort of dynamic situation. This scripture is not an endorsement to put yourself into a situation in which your integrity could be overcome or could be compromised by temptation. That would be an unwise thing to do, but it is an encouragement to maintain your integrity in all circumstances. The next thing we see here is Boaz's generosity. Now once again, Boaz's generosity is displayed when he gives her six measures of barley to take home with her to Naomi. He cares for her and he wants to provide for her and Naomi. And then also there's this motivation to do the right thing no matter what. Boaz wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to be with Ruth and it was the right thing um, initially not to make any advances towards her at this stage. Uh, he wasn't going to take shortcuts. He was also aware that there was a glitch with the plan, which meant that proposing marriage to her immediately was not the right thing to do. There was something that needed to be sorted out first. And that brings us to our next point. Trust in God when obstacles appear. So here's Boaz speaking to Ruth. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, and here it comes, here comes that spanner in the works, although it is true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I am. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Boaz's commitment to Ruth at this point was to do everything that he could to be married to her. But he had to do it the right way. There is a problem. It turns out that under the Hebrew law, and under their situation, there is another man who is first in line ahead of Boaz for the right to marry Ruth and to redeem her and the family land. Now, it's not indicated within the text whether Naomi was aware of this other man or not. And if she was, she either viewed Boaz as a better husband for Naomi or, as I earlier alluded to, she picked up on the will of God in this case, in Ruth's case. Now the temptation here for Boaz was to take a shortcut and go ahead and marry Ruth anyway and deal with the fallout later. But that's not the right way to go about it. As we know, Boaz is an upright man and he chooses to trust in God and to go about things in the correct manner that God would prescribe him to. 
And the other thing we see here as well is we someone, see someone choosing to act rather than be passive in God's unfolding plan. He could have just waited to see what happened, but no, he chose to act immediately. He will go and speak to the other guy, determining if this marriage is a go or a no-go. And of course, the risk existed that if the other man chooses to perform the duty of family redeemer, then it's game over. Ruth will be married to someone else, and Boaz will remain a bachelor. The last verse is quite amusing, the last verse of Ruth chapter 3. But again, it illustrates Boaz's determination to do the right thing and to move things on no matter what the outcome is. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth, uh, rather She was. That's the word. Thank you, Lisa. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. He sounds like a man on a mission, doesn't he? And that is where Ruth chapter 3 finishes. Now, I'm not about to give you any spoilers, though I suspect that I have given away the outcome already anyway, but you'll have to wait until we come back to Ruth 4, which is sometime in July, before we come to the conclusion of Ruth and Boaz's story. And, you know, there is an, a point in this interlude as well, isn't there? When we are in the middle of some situation, or for that matter, as we are here in this place and at this time today, we don't know what the outcome will really be. We have our hopes and our plans, but will things work out that way, or does God have something else in mind? Do we seek his will in our lot for our lives and keep our eyes open for the opportunities that he brings our way? Are our plans his plans? We learnt this morning that we should place our trust in God's will no matter what has happened in the past or whatever obstacles appear upon us, upon the way. And of course we should maintain our integrity and we should trust in him to bring about his purposes he is the big picture. Now, in conclusion, I want to bring balance to the subject of God's providence. We've looked at the examples of what some of our responsibilities should be in the light of his providence. But let's finish by focusing on God and the perspective of what he has done and what he does for us. Let's return to the passage from Acts 17 that we read at the beginning of the service. This is the big picture of God's providence. And it was um, Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 27. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him, 
Yet it is actually, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Let's pray. Lord, we just acknowledge you this morning that you are indeed the great and mighty God. But the fantastic thing in, in, in the hope that we have and that we know, Lord, through your word, is that you are not far from any of us. That you are there, Lord. Lord, we just pray that we are a people who will seek after you. We pray that we are a people who desire to know your will and know your will within our lives, whether it's the big things, whether it's the everyday things. Lord, may we seek what your will is. Lord, help us to recognise um, that, Lord, you are the big picture, that your purposes are the big picture. And, Lord, the things that are just right there in front of us, that's our little piece of it. Lord, may our hearts and desire be that we seek after you and all those things. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to come together in your name. And Lord, we pray that as we fellowship together now and um, as we go out and go upon our weeks, Lord, may we seek after you. May we continue to pray. May we continue to um, seek you through prayer. And may we continue to seek your opportunities that you bring to us, whether it's sharing with someone else or whether it's just following through and where you would have us to go, Lord. May we do that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.